Good morning and uh, welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I am uh, one of the pastors here and Happy New Year. We're glad uh, that you are here, that, that you made it uh, both through 2016 as well as you uh, got here uh, by 10 o'clock on the night after probably some great parties last night. So uh, we're, we're glad that you're here. Welcome uh, again. Uh, we have just finished up a, a sermon series in the book of Genesis and then a few uh, Christmas sermons, and now, so we're kind of in between a few uh, sermon series right now, so uh, today it actually is a, an open mic, which um, we do these every once in a while, often between sermon series, and so uh, I got to pick, and so today I, uh, well, you guys can decide. Today I either did a very foolish thing or something really great, but I decided to preach uh, not just from the Bible, which we do here every week but uh, felt led by the Spirit to preach the entire Bible. And so if you are brand new uh, to uh, church or Christianity or the Bible, um, it is, it's a very long book. Um, here's about a thousand pages long. On this one is at least it's a very long book. But I, I, after talking with a lot of people the, over the past uh, few weeks, as well as uh, just praying a lot about what, what I should preach this morning, really felt led to preach on the Bible. So today's uh, sermon is going to be entitled "The Story of the Bible." So what I, what I want us to do today is to see that this book, we'll describe in just a second, is actually one story. It's the story of, of God's love uh, for us. It's it's uh, the story of God's salvation, and so we're going to look at that today. So a few reasons why I felt led to do this. First, like I said, we just finished uh, the first book of the Bible. We spent a whole year going through the book of Genesis, and a lot of people are wondering what happens next. Kind of the story kind of ends, Genesis 50, and we're like, well, what happens next? Do, do these promises come about? How do we get to Jesus? What's going to happen with these characters and this people group? And so uh, partly that's why I wanted to do it, to help us kind of finish the story or help us see where, where the story continues. And then second, uh, the Bible for many people, for, for most of us, can be quite confusing, right? It's a thousand pages long. It's, it's very, uh, it's got lots going on in there. And so um, both for unbelievers and for Christians alike, the Bible can be very confusing. So we're hoping today in a short amount of time, we can hopefully blow away some of that fog of confusion. So for unbelievers, uh, this just n not understanding the Bible and that confusion can be a really big deal, right? You, you maybe have heard people say, Christians, you believe this verse or this verse, or you think that this is true or that's true, but I know there's also verses in there about not eating shellfish and not touching, you know, dead animal skins, and so when you played football and then went to Red Lobster, you're breaking the Bible's rules, and so how can you then say, you know, you should follow these, uh, these verses or these rules in other parts of the Bible, so, so there's a confusion about uh, understanding the Bible. For Christians as well, we have Lots of questions when we interact with this text, whether we know it really well or whether we're just reading it or learning it for the first time. Questions like, should I read the Old Testament different than the way that Jews do or Muslims? Should I understand, or how should I understand confusing books like Ecclesiastes or Job or Deuteronomy or Jeremiah? And this question, how do I read the Bible? How do I understand it? How do I interpret it? is an incredibly important question, so much so that we, we have an entire semester-long class that helps us uh, interpret the Bible. So it, it's actually just ending, so you have to wait till uh, next fall to take it. But it's, it's a very important question. So my goal this morning is uh, to help us see the biblical storyline, or see the story, the one story 
that is going through this entire book. See that one story? To make it accessible, maybe we will still have many, many questions, but we'll at least know the story of, of, of God's salvation and God's love for us and what's going on in there, and then be able to read individual stories and see how it fits in uh, with, the, with the rest of the book. And then finally, my goal is, is that uh, I've been praying that the Spirit would kindle a love and a passion for God's Word, that we wouldn't see this and be terrified by it or, or think that we can't access it or that we need someone else to, to teach it to us, but that the Spirit would give us a deep love for it in the beginning to, to understand it and apply it in our lives well. So the Bible is, is, like I've been saying, it's one story, even though it's made up of 66 different books. So just like a, a really long novel with a bunch of chapters, kind of similarly, but, but the Bible is actually made up of, of 66 different books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. We're going to use those words uh, throughout this morning. Old Testament essentially is, is, is the Hebrew scriptures or uh, the, the Hebrew, um, yeah, the Hebrew scriptures, and it's, it's before Jesus. And then the New Testament starts up with when Jesus is born. So uh, a lot more to say about that, but in, in summary, that's what the Old Testament and the New Testament are. The Bible is written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors over three continents. So even just backing up and looking at this as, as, a, as a piece of history or as a piece of literature, it should just blow our minds. A, a one story that's written in many different genres by dozens and dozens and dozens of authors over a millennia and a half. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, this is kind of a cool graphic that just shows you uh, the books of the Bible. So like I said, there's 66 different books if you look on... I'm going to get my laser pointer down here. So this side here is the Old Testament. This side is the New Testament. And the different colors are different genres. So you can just see that uh, there's many different genres going uh, throughout the Bible that, that, that are telling the same story, but in different ways. Some in poetry, some in history, some in, in, in letters, some in narrative. And what's... Uh, What's really cool to see, yeah, is, is that it's all telling one story despite the, the, the many different, uh, yeah, the many different aspects of the Bible, the different genres, different uh, authors, different times, things like that. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, we read that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, so the Bible is not just written by these 40 authors, and it's not just these 40 different people's opinions, speaking to their specific times and context. But rather, the, the, like 2 Timothy 3.16 just said, God is, is the inspirer of this whole book. God is the co-author of the Bible. He works through his spirit by, by empowering, inspiring human authors to write, but God is the author that is behind the writing of the Bible as well. And so that's why there, uh, there can be one story despite many different authors authors that didn't even know each other, that didn't even, even understand what the next people were going to write. And that's also the reason that we can see a shadow or a whisper or a hint of, of the cross and of Jesus uh, in books that were in hundreds and hundreds of years before he even showed up. If the Bible were just written by human authors, it could only have one meaning, right? But if God is writing through humans, if God's the ultimate author behind it, then we can find meaning in the Old Testament or in, or in certain books of the Bible that even that author didn't quite realize fully what he was writing. 
So if God is the author of the Bible, then it can have deeper, truer, and ultimate meanings that even the original author didn't truly understand or fully understand. So before we hop into the Bible, we're literally going to go from the beginning to the end. Incredibly quick. Incredibly quick. But we're gonna, before we jump into that, we're going to cheat and we're going to look at how the book ends. Some of you like to do this. Maybe you like to flip to the last couple pages in a novel before you start it or you want to read about the spoilers in a movie before you start. Some people think that's ridiculous, but I know people that do that. They, they want to know how it ends. And just like in the movie The Sixth Sense, the ending makes the beginning clear. So if you don't know the movie Sixth Sense, uh, you, you watch the whole thing. I know, spoiler alert, but it's like it's been around for 25 years, so <laughs> so sorry. But at the very ending of, of the film, you find out Bruce Willis is dead, and he's really just a ghost, or he's, but, well, well, he's dead. And that helps you understand the whole, the whole movie. The movie doesn't make sense until you know the ending, okay? And so just like that, just like in the film, the sixth sense, the story or the Bible only makes sense when we know the ending, when we know what, how it climaxes or what everything is pointing to or the, the, the ultimate meaning in everything that precedes the cross. There's this incredible story. After Jesus dies and, and raises from the grave, he meets up with some of his disciples and he tells them, so this is after his death and resurrection, he tells them that the whole Old Testament was speaking about him. It's, an, it's a huge neon blinking sign that's pointing ahead in history to Jesus' life and especially his death and resurrection. Luke 24 says, In beginning with Moses and the prophets, we're speaking of uh, the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus teaches his disciples, look back, look back at the Old Testament and see how all of it is really about me. All of it finds its, its fulfillment or completion in me. So things like people pointing ahead to Jesus. The New Testament speaks about Jesus being the new Adam, the ultimate King David, a greater Isaac. Events in the Old Testament point ahead to Jesus. Jesus is the new Exodus and the new Sabbath or the ultimate Sabbath. He brings permanent rescue and rest. Prophecies in the Old Testament point ahead to Jesus. He's the suffering servant. He's the new covenant. He's the eternal king that's going to come from the line of David. Celebrations and festivals in the Old Testament point ahead to Jesus. The day of atonement is fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus is the Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And even things like institutions point ahead to Christ. Jesus is the king of all the kings. He is the ultimate high priest who intercedes for us. He's the perfect sacrifice, the lamb of God. And he's the real temple. So th there's this beautiful graphic that, that someone did. Uh, on the left here, this is the New Testament. On the right here, sorry, Old Testament and New Testament. And each one of these lines is when the New Testament refers to the Old Testament. Or even here, when the Old Testament refers to each other. But you just see that the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways that the Bible reads itself. It, it, it interprets itself by saying, hey, what was happening way back here... The, the New Testament comments on it. And so you see that the Bible is this incredibly intricate, profound story. That's one story that inter interrelates with each other. And what's also neat to see here, too, is that you don't see like a big blank right here in the New Testament, like they, or, or back here as well, but you see that 
throughout the whole Bible, they're referencing each other, they're interpreting each other, they're, they're using each other to support what God is doing, and we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways of how the New Testament is looking back to the Old Testament saying, hey, we understand what this was really about. We understand what this prophecy or this institution or this person, how it really is like, like Christ. And so the entire Bible reads itself as one intricate, profound, consistent story. The Old Testament, so the first 39 books of the Bible, the Hebrew Scripture, uh, what's, what's unique about the story, so as we pick it up when Jesus comes, lots of people knew the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures really, really well, but most of them missed Jesus. And so the early church definitely had many Jews in it right away, but the majority of the Jewish people did not see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament or as the coming king or as the Messiah, but they missed him. So Christians actually do read the Old Testament very differently than Jewish people do. The New Testament picks up on, on this and writes about this. Second Corinthians, it says, But the Jews' minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to Jesus, the veil is removed. So the New Testament is writing about the Old Testament or, or people who studied and knew the Old Testament really well and they're saying that they're, they're, there's this veil, that they're not able to see the true meaning in the Old Testament and that Jesus is actually what it is all about. Or another way, maybe a more clear way to understand this is, as the famous, uh, world-famous theologian Christopher Walker has said, Jesus is like a pair of Dakota glasses that helps us Remove the, the red squiggly lines and helps us see the hidden message behind it, which is actually, that also happens through Jesus as well. So, so maybe you remember these if uh, you were a kid or on the, often they were on the back of cereal boxes and you get these little glasses and you can't see the picture, but when you put the glasses on, you understand what, what, what's really going on there. Or another way to summarize if uh, Chris's idea or Second Corinthians was, was confusing, this uh, author, Sally Lloyd, joined Sally Lloyd-Jones summarizes the Bible. She writes this. She says, People think that the Bible is a book full of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible, they aren't heroes at all. They make big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times they are downright mean. Now, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. So let's begin. We're going to jump in. We're literally going to go through the entire Bible super quick. Probably say this a few times, but there's obviously much, much, much more we can say, and I'm going to be summarizing a lot. We're going to try to get from the very beginning of the Bible to the end to see this one story, to see the storyline that starts in Genesis and ends at the very end in Revelation. And so we're going to start with Genesis. And a as we go through this, I'm going to start by, by uh, saying uh, kind of a summary statement. So at the very beginning, we're going to see our, our, our identity. Then in parentheses, you're going to see where in the Bible this takes place. So like I said, we're going to start at the beginning, go all the way through the end. 
and then after that, uh, so here it says creation, we're going to share a, um, an, a, a big event that's happening in this. So the Bible starts off by describing our identity. So at the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, first couple chapters of the Bible, it describes our identity. So God creates, God creates the universe and everything in it. He creates uh, mankind as humanity as the pinnacle of his creation that, that images him. And he places them in paradise. So we have perfection all around. We have the perfect place. We have perfect relationships. There's, there's no sin. There's no death. There's no disease. No suffering. No shame. No brokenness. Everything is perfect. And that's our identity. That, that's how things start. Genesis 1.31 describing this as, and, and God saw everything that he had made. Everything. And behold, it was very good. There was nothing at the beginning that was not very good. That's how it starts. But very soon, in just the next chapter, chapter 3, all hell breaks loose. Our first parents doubt God's word. They doubt his goodness. They don't trust him anymore. And they want something different. They want something apart from him. They want to be like him, but without him. And they, they listen to the devil who comes in, in the form of a servant. And the fall happens. Sin enters the world, and it poisons everything. Death, destruction, disease, conflict, sin, shame, brokenness enter the world. And our first parents are, are kicked out of God's presence, no longer in their perfect relationship with him no no longer are they living with him anymore and our ability to to image god to reflect god is broken through the fall but in maybe one of the darkest parts of the entire bible the entire human history there's a whisper of hope a whisper of love at the end of this story at the end of genesis 3 god kills an innocent animal and he covers their sin and shame and then he promises that brokenness and pain and suffering and death and distance from him will not always rule. He promises that he's going to send someone born of woman to crush the snake and his powers and his lies and his destruction. The Bible continues. In the rest of the book of Genesis, God's solution to this big problem, this problem of, of sin and death and Satan and brokenness and, and pain and suffering, ruling our world, the rest of Genesis begins to tell us God's promise of a solution, that it won't always end that way. One of the main characters here we see is this guy named Abraham, who makes up, he's, uh, him and his family make up uh, the majority of the book of Genesis. And if you were here for Genesis, you, you know his story well. So God picks this guy, he's worshiping idols in a far-off land. He goes to him and says, he says, follow me, leave your homeland, leave those idols, come with me, and I'll covenant with you. I'll make a promise with you that I'll make your, your family into a great family, a great nation. I will give you a land, and I will make you a blessing. You will become a blessing to all the families, all the tribes of the world. Galatians, a book in the New Testament, looks back at what's going on here in Genesis and calls it the gospel beforehand. So God's solution, the good news, was promised ahead of time. Also in Galatians 3, we read, Now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say into his offspring, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the New Testament, looking back at the Old Testament, said what's going on in this part, God's solution promise is not Abraham's thousands and tens of thousands and millions 
of descendants and offspring, but the solution that's promised is actually going to come through one particular offspring, one singular offspring. And the New Testament says, on this side of the cross, they say, we know who that is. We know that it is through Christ. So kind of a summary of the biblical narrative. We're, if you look in your sermon handout, we got like, I don't know, 10 points or something like that as we go through the Bible. A much simpler way to kind of look at it, and again, it's very, very much summarized, can be to look at uh, the Bible or, or, or salvation history as kind of four stages, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. So we kind of unpacked the first two so far. Creation, the way things are supposed to be, perfection, paradise, no sin, no death, life with God, then the fall happens and everything gets destroyed, as you can kind of see from that graphic. And from then on, Genesis 3 on, all the way until the cross, we're living in that time. Things are not perfect. Things are broken. Death and, and Satan and sin and suffering rule until the cross happens. And then at the cross, redemption happens and from, from then until Jesus' second coming. And we'll get to that at the very end of, of today. We see restoration, where God makes all things new, where there's a return back to the way it was in creation, but even better. So this can be kind of helpful. It, it is very broad, but it's an easy way for, for people to, uh, something to remember, much easier than that handout with, with all those different things we're going to go through. But the point is just to see that there are kind of four different uh, um, four different scenes in, in, in the story of, of the Bible. And it's helpful to see where these all fit in. So right now we're in, we're in the fall. And for the, uh, the, the majority of what we're going to be talking about today, it's kind of happening in that one as well. All right, so we continue. So after the book of Genesis ends, God's solution is pictured. And it's pictured through the book of Exodus. The word Exodus means like escaping or leaving. And there's actually an event called the Exodus, which is in the book of Exodus. So what happens is God's people, they, bec they do become a great nation, but they're in Egypt, and now they're enslaved. They're slaves, they're oppressed, and they're actually not God's people. They're actually uh, Pharaoh's people. And so in the Exodus, the, the whole book is this, this great story of God rescuing them, God helping them escape through his power and his might out of slavery, out of oppression, out of exile, not being in their own land, and making them his people. And that's the story of the Exodus. God brings them out of Egypt and into the promised land, into the land that he promised to Abraham. And so we, we start to hear whispers of kind of this return back to an Eden-like existence. We're in the land where we're close to God, where we're not slaves, where we're not oppressed. So God saves his people. He, he takes them through the Red Sea. If you, if you know that story, the the sea closes up over Pharaoh and all the enemies of God's people, and they're rescued. And after that, he, he brings uh, his people to a mountain, the Mount, Mount Sinai. And here, the next part of the story is we see God's solution pictured. Sorry, God's solution pointed to. This happens in the book Exodus through the book of Deuteronomy. And so God takes his people to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And you can kind of see in this picture, it's, you know, 18, 18th century uh, painting on it, but uh, that, that's supposed to be God up there in the top, kind of glowing at the top of this big mountain. But God is a holy God, and even though he, he saves his people, he rescues them, calls them his people, they, he's still a holy God, and they're still sinful people. There's, there's a sin problem, and, and in this part of the story, the people of God can't go touch the mountain, because God is holy, and they're not. And if they touch it, they 
they will die. And so even though they're rescued, even though they're in the land, they're getting close to the land, even though they're, they're God's people now and not Pharaoh's people anymore, there's still this separation. There's still this great realization that God is holy and perfect and he loves them and he wants them back, but there's a big problem. Their sin is still keeping them from him. So this is the point where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament law, and then Moses gives it to uh, God's people. And what's unique and really uh, important to, to, to know about this part is, is God calls Israel. He gives them two descriptions, or many descriptions, but two, two important ones. He calls them a kingdom of priests, and he calls them a holy nation. So he says, I saved you. You're my people now. This is how I'm going to describe you. This is the identity I'm going to give you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. So when you think of priests, think of Old Testament and, and what priests did. They're, they're intercessors, right? They're mediators between people and God. They're examples to the people that are watching them. And so God is telling the nation of Israel, you're, you're not just going to be a few priests. You're going to be an entire kingdom of priests. The world is going to look to you as, as an example, or the world is going to see me through, through you as a mediator, as an, an uh, intercessor. And he also calls them a holy nation. So the word holy means set apart or, 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 or different. And so he's saying, I want you to be a nation. You're going to be a nation. If you, if you follow these laws, it's going to be different. You're going to look different. You're going to smell different. You're going to eat different. You're going to act different. You're going to worship differently than the people surrounding you. I want you to be a set apart nation. Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 7 speaks of this. Keep them, speaking of the law, these Ten Commandments and the hundred of other laws as well. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people. So the other nations that are looking in and seeing Israel. Who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So this was not meant to be the end though. This was just a placeholder. This was just the solution that God wanted, it was pointed to. Just meant to be a placeholder. It's a picture. It's a simple pointing ahead to the real solution. Because remember, or, or look and see what they're doing now. Are they being a blessing to the nations? No, not, not really. I mean, in some ways, because people can kind of see who, who God Almighty really is by, by looking in at Israel. But he doesn't say, Israel, go into all the world and convert people to Judaism. Go into all the world and, and, and make them do, do sacrifices and, and do our purity laws and, and, and make them Jewish people instead of Canaanites or Philistines or whatever. That's actually not what's happening here. So this is not actually the ultimate solution. The, the nations of the world are not really being blessed. And God's people are actually staying in the land. They're not leaving. They're, they're, they're supposed to stay. So this points forward. It tells us that this is not the ultimate solution. It's just a placeholder. Also, a big part of the law included the sacrificial system. So do you remember anything about the Old Testament or do you think of ancient religions? You think they sacrificed animals in order to appease the gods or wh whatever it might be. So a big part about, about this law that God gave his people, there actually was a sacrificial system. But it wasn't just slaughter one animal and then all your sins are forgiven. It's every time you sin. Blood has to be shed. Romans 9.22 says that under the law, there, there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. 
So this only kind of dealt with the issue, right? So they have a sin problem, and they can kill an animal, and that animal's, th- their sin actually goes on that animal, and then they're, they're kind of forgiven of their sins, or their sins are atoned for. But how long does that last? Until, until you sin again, right? So it was kind of a solution, but not really a solution. So again, the law and the sacrificial system about pointing ahead to something even better than, than that. The law pointed ahead to a need for something else. First of all, no one can keep this law. They're, they're continually sinning again and again and again and again, as well as there needs to be a better sacrifice, a sacrifice that will die once and for all, for all the sins, and atone for them. As we continue through the Bible, book of Joshua, all the way through Second Chronicles, we see God's solution prefigured. We see this through kings, throughout Israel's history, as well as the temple. So Israel becomes a nation, and it's kind of in and out of the promised land. They're fighting against other kings. There's lots of ups and downs throughout this, throughout this per, uh, period of history. And maybe Israel's famous, most famous king, King David, which you probably at least recognize that statue, but uh, David, the, the, the most important king throughout Israel's history, God makes a covenant with him. Similar, remember God made a covenant with Abraham, and now God's making a covenant with uh, Israel's premier king. And he says to him, In your house and your kingdom shall be sure, in your, in your house and kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God's promise to Abraham becomes even more clear in God's promise, God's covenant with King David. The solution to humanity's problem is going to come through a king, a specific king, a king in the line of David. And this king, he'll reign forever, and he'll reign in righteousness. So at this point, they're, they're maybe thinking, okay, this is just symbolic, or their minds are just blown thinking, really, a king that will reign forever? Like, David reigned for 40 years, or this other king reigned for 12 years or something. A king that can reign forever? How, how can that be? And Israel also thinking, we know our kings. They, are not, they do not rule in righteousness. Maybe they have a good spurt, but nearly every king, even David, the, the, the pinnacle of Israel's king still was, was a horrible man. Did lots of evil things throughout his life. Was not, uh, like Sally Lloyd-Jones says, was not really a hero in, in, in many ways. And then, so, and then uh, David's son Solomon, he builds the temple. And so up, in, up until this point, God has been living with or dwelling with his people, but in kind of this tent thing called the tabernacle. Then David's son Solomon says, I'm going to build God a permanent home. And so they build this immense, beautiful, uh, incredible temple. And it's a much more permanent and even more visible way that God, in some ways, is, is living with his people. Right? So kind of a, a whisper back to the way things were supposed to be back in the Garden of Eden. But you can see here in this picture, we zoom up even more, that even though God is kind of sort of living with his people, there's still many barriers, many rules, many laws, many walls, many courts, many curtains that are keeping people away from God. So even though you're living in this time and you see the great temple, you realize, hey, Yahweh, God Almighty, he's living with us. He's living amongst his people. But you also realize, I am far, far, far away from God. There's many barriers, literal barriers as well as my own sin. But even though God is, is sort of living with his people, we see all these barriers. And again, it pushes the story forward. So both the kingship and the temple prefigure and point ahead to God's solution. 
a perfect king who reigns forever and who will reign justly, and an even better temple where God will live with his people once again, but without barriers, without laws, without courts, without curtains, without walls. The story continues, and Israel continues on the decline. They continue to rebel against God, worship idols, oppress each other, and the kingdom splits in two. The southern kingdom still kind of is, is uh, ruled by the Davidic line. And God sends prophets and messengers in this time to tell the people of Israel, God's people, what are you doing? Return to God. And after many, many, many years of this happening and Israel continuing this kind of downward spiral, they get exiled. They, they get uh, taken over by another country, but by, by Babylon. Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple's destroyed, and the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are kicked out of their land. So it seems very hopeless, right? Very, very hopeless. All these kind of promises that were given earlier are not here. This, this greatness that they kind of realized in some ways when David and Solomon were king and they had their own nation and their land and God was living with them and there was some prosperity. That has all ended. And this is when the prophets kind of come in and they speak to uh, God's people who are in exile. God's people who are far away from their land, far away from their God, being enslaved or at least impressed by these foreign uh, idol-worshiping kings. And the prophets came, and just summarizing again, they spoke of God's promise, of God's solution, predicted that it's going to happen. And so uh, one of the, the main prophets, prophet Isaiah, he promised a new exodus. A new exodus would come. He prophesied that God would send a new king in the line of David who would save God's people and who would rule with uh, justice forever. And he prophesied that a servant of God would die in the place of his people. Another famous prophet, Jeremiah, prophesied that God would make a new covenant, just like he did with Abraham and just like he did with, with David. He's going to make a new covenant, an even better covenant with his people in the future. And also we see in, in the prophets, God saying that he's going to give his people a new heart. He's going to deal with this problem that we just have so much sin in our lives and that we cannot follow the law no matter how hard we try. And so God promises through the prophets that he's going to exchange our hearts. That he's going to take the old heart that can only eventually go back to sin with a new heart and that he's going to put his spirit inside of his people. So then after the prophets, God didn't speak for 400 years. Nothing. Just silence. So the people are wondering, what's, what's going to happen? What about all these, these promises that the prophets have made? What about these promises God has given to, to David and to Abraham? Will God's rescue plan still happen? Has he given up on us? Have we sinned too much that we are apart from his love? Has he forgotten his promises? But then, just like we celebrated last week, after 400 years, an angel comes into the world, tells a virgin that the Savior is going to be coming through her child, that her child is actually God himself. He will save his people from their sin and will be called Emmanuel, God with us. There's this hope that sin is going to be dealt with, our sins are going to be forgiven, and that God's going to live with us once again. And so in the Gospels, so now we're into the New Testament, the, the Gospels are, are genre, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different authors writing about eyewitness accounts of, of Jesus' life. And in those, we see God's solution personified. 
It's not, well, let me just read this, from Porterbrook. Our solution was a person, Jesus. In the Bible story, he is the hero. He is the one for whom we have been waiting. Our solution turns out not to be an it, but a he. Not a program or a formula or an idea or a manifesto or a philosophy or a set of values or beliefs. It is not found in in a higher state of consciousness or a higher standard of living. Our solution is a man. And what he said and did demonstrated that he is the real thing. So our solution actually comes, and it comes in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. And briefly, I'm going to fly through this, but we're going to look at like a dozen ways that the New Testament speaks of Jesus, or he speaks about himself as fulfilling the Old Testament. All this stuff we've just been talking about. Jesus is called the Word of God. Jesus is called the new Adam, the true Adam, the better Adam. Jesus is Abraham's offspring, the, the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the exodus, the one who would truly bring his people out of, out of slavery and oppression. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the, the, the true Sabbath, the one who brings not just uh, uh, one day, not just 24 hours of rest, but eternal rest. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the perfect law keeper. We could never keep all the laws. We were never sinless, but Jesus is that for us because we could never do it. Jesus is the son of God, or he is the true Israel. Jesus even is the embodiment or the fulfillment of all these institutions we saw in the New Testament. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, it says in Hebrews. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is our prophet, and Jesus is the lamb, our inheritance. So our solution has come, and it has come as a person. And then as we get to the end of the Gospels, at the end of Jesus' life, we see he doesn't just come as a teacher and a miracle worker and a healer and a great example, but he comes as a savior. We see at the end of the Gospels, and then the rest of the New Testament describes or expands on or says this is what is happening at the cross. We see that our solution is purchased for us. Jesus dies in our place on the cross. He takes the sin of the world on himself, this beautiful and, and disgusting moment. We see, we see both the, the justice and the mercy of God kissed. And Jesus pays the penalty that we deserve for our sins. He's, he's the ultimate sacrificial lamb of the law, of the Old Testament. And just like when a lamb was slaughtered, a person's sins were forgiven, the same thing happens with Christ on the cross. And then after Jesus' death and burial, as we know, that the, the tomb does not stay empty for very long. After three days, Jesus is raised from the grave. And we see both in the resurrection and in Pentecost, we'll talk about that in a second, we see this hope now proclaimed. It goes from being, we're looking forward, we're looking forward, we're looking forward, we're looking forward to he's here, and then he does it, he purchases it, our solution for us. And now, from this point on, his followers proclaim it. They share it with the world. So in Jesus' resurrection, Jesus defeats death once and for all. His resurrection is described as the first fruits of our resurrection. So just like Jesus defeated death and was raised in a physical, perfected body, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about us, if we believe in Christ, if, if, if we trust in him when we die, and when, when Christ comes back, we'll be resurrected in the same, in the same type of way. Christ's resurrection is, 
is the first fruits of ours, and death is overcome when Jesus rises from the grave. And our hope, which is Jesus, or which is God's salvation through Jesus' death and his resurrection, is now proclaimed. The rest of the story is we proclaim this great hope. Jesus tells his disciples to go preach this good news and to spread this gospel throughout the world. Right before he ascends to go back and, and be with uh, God the Father, he tells his disciples, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So now through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all the nations of the world, all the families of the world are going to be blessed through the gospel, through, through Jesus' death and resurrection. Salvation is coming to all tribes, all tongues, all ethnicities, all nations, all families, just like what was promised through Abraham. So remember, before this, Israel is supposed to be a set-apart holy nation. But now, after the gospel, it changes. Jesus tells his disciples, now go into the entire world. Spread this message. It's no, it's no longer people you have to come and see. You have to come to physical Israel and see who God is. But now it's, we have this great message. Our solution has come. and We're going to procl- proclaim this hope through the nations to everyone. And at Pentecost, so after Jesus ascends to heaven, his disciples kind of gather together and wait for Jesus' next instructions. And miraculously, the, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. It looks like tongues of fire. And there's people from all over the Jewish, or all over the world coming into Jerusalem for a festival. And then all these disciples who have just gotten the Holy Spirit now start speaking in different languages. They start speaking in, in Arabic and, and Swahili and Mandarin and, and French. And the people who are there from other countries are saying, these are Jewish people from Jerusalem. How are they speaking my language? And through this powerful, uh, miraculous act, they're able to preach the gospel to, to people that live all, all over the world. And we see, uh, uh, we see the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham, that all the nations are going to be blessed through hearing the gospel. And they, they share this, this great news, this hope, that now we can be reconciled to God. Our sins can be forgiven. We can live with him again. We can return to him. It's now possible. And it doesn't matter your nationality, your creed, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your social status, your gender, your wealth. It doesn't matter your, your past. It doesn't matter your sins. It doesn't matter your doubts anymore. All are welcome to God through Jesus Christ. And the rest of the Bible goes on to, to proclaim that and then talk about the implications of that good news. And the Bible ends with his return, Christ's return, and our return. Our return back to the way it was supposed to be. A remedy has come. A rescuer has come. We see this in the last book of, book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And it ends with eternity, with God and his people living together forever in a new heaven, in a new earth. Revelation, the book of Re- Revelation speaks about our earth being renewed or recreated or restored, just like Jesus' body and our bodies to follow that was, was perfected and resurrected. And, and, and uh, similarly, the, the earth is going to be renewed and, and perfected and restored. We're going to return to an Eden-like existence. And when Christ comes back, the snake is finally and fully going to be crushed. All pain, suffering, mourning, and death 
will be gone. Tell the Bible end. Tell our story ends. Revelation 21, 4 says, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be there, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for these former things have passed away. So we'll be living in our perfected bodies, our resurrected bodies, just like Christ. Again, Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So no longer are we separated from God. No longer do we have to go through certain laws or rituals. Rather, in the end, it'll be like it was in Eden, but even better. God will live with us without any barriers, without anything separating us from him, and we will be his people, and he will be our God. Jen Wilkin, a a fantastic author, she describes this pure joy and glory of what eternity will be like, referencing Christmas, something we just all experienced. Like a Christmas morning with always another present to unwrap, eternity will increasingly disclose his hidden glories to the eyes of our hearts. So just like a Christmas morning that never ends, more and more excitement and glory and joy as we learn more and more about our God, that's what eternity will be like. So this week I've been praying that God would help us to see his word as one story. Even though it still might be confusing, even though we not, might not know what's going on in every verse or passage or story, we're able to see where it fits in. We're able to love this book even more without being so intimidated, maybe thinking we can't understand it. And seeing it as one story that ultimately is about Jesus. Jesus the hero, Jesus the solution. So I've been praying that we'd see the Bible not as a bunch of random stories that are disconnected and strange, but rather that Hiawatha Church, I've been praying that we would see the Bible as one beautiful, sweet, intricate, powerful story about Jesus, our King, our Savior, our God. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, 
who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus.